hidden inside of every person's being in their soul exists deep longings and cravings. Every one of us yearns to look at something that's beyond ourselves, to marvel at it, to desire it, and to love it with affection. Our, our thoughts, our desires, even our behaviors are constantly, without ceasing, revolving orienting around something. And so humans are constantly ascribing worth to something. And so we tend to go out and search for it. It. We, we look under every rock and behind every tree that this world has to offer us, and we're looking for something that will finally satisfy our soul's deepest desires and to give us a a sense of true and lasting joy. And and just when you think you found it, you realize that it has left you empty and disappointed. Why is that? It's because God has made us for himself. You and I have been made for God. You exist to know and to enjoy Jesus. And if you have never given your life to worship Jesus, then you have no hope of finding it. You have no hope of finding true peace, lasting joy, having your soul satisfied. You have no hope. Because you're going against the creator and how he has hardwired you, what your purpose is for existing. But even those of us who do know Jesus, who have repented of our sins and are trusting in Christ alone to save us, even those of us that do have an eternal hope, we still find ourselves daily struggling with this reality. And so we know, we really do, we know that we're created to worship God. We know this, and and we know that lasting joy does not exist outside of Jesus. We know this. We know, and yet we find ourselves daily still struggling with turning to empty idols for meaning and for comfort, for approval, for joy. Again, why is that? We have Jesus. So why? Because we are broken. We are a broken people and we live in a broken land. And Proverbs 26 verse 11 describes us sadly quite well. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And we are all truly desperate for his healing and his restoration, and only the Spirit of God can accomplish it. Today, we are continuing to meditate on this truth of restoration, a series that we put on hold in December for the Christmas and New Year season, and now that everyone's back, we're picking up where we left off with Nehemiah chapter 5. Today, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 6. 
This series is called Restoration. It's the gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. So just to get you up to speed on the context, if this is your first time here today, Jerusalem was the city that was called to declare God's name and then to to reflect his glory to the nations, to, to be a light to the nations. But instead, due to rebellion and and persistent sin and unrepentance, Jerusalem was demolished by the Babylonians. And the temple was brought down to rubble, and the city walls were destroyed. And the people of God no longer lived in the land of promise in Judah. Instead, they were living in modern-day Iraq, in Babylon. But God changed the heart of the new world power, Persia, King Cyrus of Persia decided to allow the people of God, the Jews, to return back to their homeland. And we have seen how God empowered his people to truly experience restoration where the temple was rebuilt. And through the teaching of Ezra the priest, even their lives were restored where they were refocused on the worship of the one true God. And this restoration continued with the leadership of Nehemiah, a man that God led away from Persia. He was a high-ranking political official who worked with the king, served him directly in the palace. This is a really great position, a great career, and yet he left the capital to go to dusty, demolished Jerusalem to see it rebuilt to rebuild the wall so that they would have safety and security to be able to worship God and not have the enemy go and destroy them. And so today we're picking up with Nehemiah chapter 6 where the, the wall's reconstruction is just about finished. Now, do keep in mind when we read the Bible, the Old Testament, and in this case, Ezra and Nehemiah, that everything you're seeing in Nehemiah is pointing to Jesus, everything about it. And That's what we're calling this. This is the gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. Because God's people in the 5th century B.C. being restored back to the promised land points to the ultimate truth that we experience, that we have been restored, and yet we are still waiting for the final restoration where one day we're going to go home. We're going to be home. We are citizens of heaven, and we're not home yet. We're still in exile, waiting to go to the promised land, be with Christ forever. And so you see, in Ezra Nehemiah, is a foreshadowing of what we're experiencing and what will happen one day. You also see the temple being rebuilt. Well, Jesus is the ultimate temple builder that Ezra is pointing to. Whereas they built a physical temple, God is building a spiritual temple with living stones, a spiritual temple, a dwelling where the Spirit of God lives and He lives in us and we are those spiritual stones that make the house of God and the Spirit is present right here and right now in us and His presence is manifested when we're even here together. So He's building a spiritual temple and look around the room and you see God's work. Lives transformed. Jesus is the final and better Ezra. Ezra, who was a priest that revealed God's word. Well, Jesus is the final Ezra 
who has come and in the final sense revealed who God is and leads us to true worship. Jesus is the final better Nehemiah. That he builds not a physical wall, but Jesus, the final Nehemiah, is building his church and establishing his kingdom. And so what we see is it's all pointing to Jesus and his gospel, and we find ourselves caught up in this story, and it so applies to us today in the 21st century. And so if you are new to this faith family, I want to just let you know some of our convictions about God's word here at ECC Off Island. When we read the Bible, every single text that we read, we believe is reliable. The Bible has not been changed over the years. That's just not true. The Bible has no errors. It's inerrant. It's infallible. We always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And when we have a hard text, we search it to see why God has revealed that because we believe that it's true. And since the Bible has no errors, we submit ourselves to its authority. So in this church, the, the Bible is the final authority. We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word, and we don't ever question it. We do ask questions to better understand, but we never question the authority of God's word. The Bible reveals who God is. We find him in, in the pages that are alive and the power that the Spirit uses this truth and it grips our hearts. And so we can know God personally only because he's revealed himself in his word. And so with all of that said, let's read Nehemiah chapter 6. Let's begin with just the first few verses up to verse 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that it had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time it had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekephurim. In the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to him saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop where, while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Let me give you the primary truth. This is the main idea that we're seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 6. It is that God empowers his people to persist in accomplishing his purposes. So we'll see here in this chapter that God, he is one through his spirit, he is empowering us to persist, to keep going in accomplishing his will, his purposes. And so those of us that are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we have already been restored to God. That, that relationship is reconciled. But as we talk, we're not yet in heaven, and so we're not fully restored yet. So we need to continue to press forward, as we read in Philippians 3, early worship gathering. Press forward, not back, but persist in continuing. As we need more of his sanctifying presence in our life, we need more of his restoration in the here and the now. As we wait for that final day, when we will stand before him, see Jesus as he is fully glorified, fully restored. And so we're seeing here this 
this is such food for our soul in helping us understand how he empowers us in this journey of, of pressing forward and, and persisting to follow God and do his will. And God empowers us in our daily struggles. But we have an enemy. And the enemy wants to oppose God, his people, his purposes. And he uses several different ways to try to oppose us. And so when you see here in Nehemiah 6, these enemies, and the college is that in verse 1, it says, when the enemies heard that I had built the wall, of course, only missing the, the doors and the gates, the wall is pretty much finished. And the enemies here are trying to oppose the completion of the wall. They're trying to oppose the purposes of God. They wanted Jerusalem to still be in rubble because they cared nothing for the glory of God. And yet Nehemiah wanted to see you rebuilt because he wanted the holy city, Jerusalem, to, to be rebuilt. He didn't want to see it in, in rubble because that, that was shameful. And so Nehemiah cared about the name of God being glorified. And so he wanted to rebuild. But the enemy wanted to tear down and prevent the rebuilding. And so just like the enemy in the 5th century B.C. was opposing God and his people, he continues today to still oppose us. And Nehemiah shows how, how the grace of God can come into our lives and he can give us the strength to resist temptation and to persist in following our God. And so we're going to see three ways that Satan, our enemy, seeks to prevent us from truly being satisfied in Christ and experiencing this joy in him. And so these are, these are schemes or, or tactics that he still uses today. And so number one, God empowers his people in the face of distractions. So number one, our enemy is going to use distractions to keep us from accomplishing what God has called us to do and to become what he has already called us to be. The enemy wants us distracted. You see, with the wall almost complete, all that's missing was just the doors. The enemies around Nehemiah wanted to still have control and to have power over the people of God. And so they didn't want the walls to be completed. And so these neighboring rulers called enemies send a messenger. One, two, three, and then four times, relentless to Nehemiah, who was the governor in Judah, saying, come and meet with us in this valley of Ono, which was over a day's journey away, equal distance from Jerusalem to Samaria. And so they said, let's meet a neutral site, kind of in the middle, but still like a day and a half away. This would have been a major distraction for Nehemiah to leave the walls reconstruction to go meet with these clowns. And he didn't want to do it because he knew better. He knew that they intended to harm him. It says, they intended to do me harm. But if Nehemiah wasn't thinking clearly, if he would have had his heart puffed up with pride, he could have said, well, I'm the governor of this region. It's important for me to have good political relations with all of my, my neighboring rulers. I need to uphold my dignity in this office, and I need to look good. And so I'm going to go ahead and go to this important high-level, you know, meeting with all the other leaders. I need to go to the GA council. No, not him. Nehemiah says, I don't need the approval of men. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to go meet with the enemy. I'm going to focus here. And he says, 
I am doing a great work for God here. I will not come down. And we need to keep this in our minds. When the enemy brings temptations our way, we need to fight back and say, I am doing a great work for God. I am not coming down. I will not be distracted. This is so critical in our world because our world is very fast-paced. It comes at us so quickly. And Saint wants us to be distracted. And deep down, he doesn't want us to be excited about Jesus and his gospel. He wants us distracted, our focus off of Christ, and to get excited about many other things, even if they're good things. But distracted where we have forgotten our first love and the main thing. See, following Jesus is not about religion. It's not about having a list of, of beliefs that you have to check the box and agree and say, okay, I'm, I'm a Christian now because I agree with this set of beliefs. It's not that. Christianity is following and loving a person. It's about Jesus. Following him, the master. He said, follow me. He didn't say follow a religion, follow a set of doctrines. He said, follow me. And so that is the call. That is who we are. We're disciples of Jesus. And so he must be the center of our deepest longings and yearnings and desires must be Jesus. But we can so subtly, and it happens very subtly, drift away and lose that focus and no longer have Jesus at the, at the center of our deepest desires and so then our, our affections for him begin to wane. Our, our thoughts are non-existent about Jesus throughout our day. Our prayer begins to really not really be there anymore or just be insipid. And so if, if your thoughts are not truly consumed by Christ and his powerful gospel to save you from your sin, then you are distracted. Something else has captured your attention, your focus on something. And the busyness of life can be so relentless and so distracting, just like these other leaders repeatedly sending messages over and over to Nehemiah, trying to distract him. Many of us can get so caught up with busyness of life that we're just doing, and a lot of it is good things, you know, your family, your career, these are important things but we get so consumed in, in that that we really do forget about Jesus. And, and what happens is then our passion for him kind of gives way to just religious rituals that we do out of habit. And so, for example, yes, we'll, we'll keep going to church. We'll be there every Friday morning. We'll even pray before our meals, even in public. Maybe even read a quick verse before you go to bed or or first thing in the morning and then rush off to work. And you really are trying to, to obey God and, and live a, quote, good Christian life. And so you're, you have all of those boxes checked, and, and yet you find yourself deep inside, like, man, something is missing. And you, your deepest longings for meaning and joy are still largely unmet. And then so in this attempt 
to find this meaning and joy or, or to get control of the situation. We, we turn to different things. And some people in this room, because I can assure you I've been one of them, will turn to theological or, or intellectual knowledge. And in this absence, this void of, of feeling something is missing, we turn to academics. We think if you read the right books, if I can give all the right answers and go to the right conferences or podcast the right pastors, then I'll be good. And it becomes this intellectual, theological pursuit. And if you're honest with yourself, deep inside you know it's not working. You keep buying books and you keep reading them, but you're not actually applying what you're reading. And quite possibly you have forsaken enjoying Jesus and you've just made it an academic exercise. Others of you aren't that academic and so that doesn't really, that's not your flavor. But you're a doer. You like getting your hands dirty. And so when you're feeling this emptiness and this void, you say, well, I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve even the church. And you're going to join four ministry teams and you're going to be so busy being engaged, doing, 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 and before long, you burn out. Because your soul is not restored. You're not enjoying Jesus. You made it about doing. And it's not about doing. It's about knowing Jesus. Not about him. Knowing him. Truly enjoying him. And you may look good on the outside because you're so busy serving others, but on the inside you know that you are suffering and you're in pain and you're far from the God that you love. Others of you turn to morality and say, I'm going to just try harder. I'm going to just double the efforts and I'm going to just be a good Christian. And you think, well, I want to be a good Christian so that God will love me. I want to be good so that God will accept me and bless me and give me joy. Maybe today you are feeling crushed under the weight of trying to earn God's love. The reality is that Jesus did not come to make us intellectuals. He, he did not come so we would try harder. He came because we're desperate, broken, and condemned, and far from ever being able to reach up to him and learning the Bible or serving the church or striving to be more holy, those are not bad things. They're good, but they cannot replace the ultimate, which is knowing and enjoying Jesus. And when we're doing that, when, you are, when your soul is gripped by Jesus himself, then you will be hungry to read the word more and to learn more. You will desire to serve, not because you want to earn anything, but because you love Jesus and you just, it's an overflow and you want to serve and you will want to grow in obedience because you don't want to disappoint him because you love him and you don't want his presence clouded in your life. And so out of love and devotion, you will naturally want to be more obedient to him. But you can't get it backwards. You start with abiding in Christ enjoying Jesus, and then you'll bear good fruit. 
We don't deserve anything good from God. I know I don't. I only deserve his condemnation. And yet he is so merciful that he loves us despite ourselves. And he is speaking to you today saying, don't be distracted. You don't have to earn anything. Just focus on me. Just come enjoy me. If you are here and you with all your heart have repented of your sins and are trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then right now you are loved. Already. You are loved. You already are accepted. You already are blessed by God. You don't have to earn it. Jesus already paid it all on the cross. And he is pleased with you in Christ. He already is. If you are trying to live a Christian life, divorced from, so apart from really enjoying Jesus. So hear me. If you're trying to live a Christian life, just the external rituals, but without really enjoying Jesus, before long you're going to get miserable. You're going to be irritable. You will become very controlling. You will hurt those that you love. Your heart will drift. And what I can tell you is by God's grace, he can reveal your sin to you that sometimes can be, you can be so blinded to your own sin and, and you can be harsh. People will not even realize it and you can be self-righteous and look down on others because you you have a certain standard that's your preferences or your opinions, and yet you hold others accountable to your own standard that goes beyond what the Bible even teaches. Areas of conscience and preference, and we think, no, it has to be this way when really there's freedom. And we look down on people for issues that are, that are negotiable. All of these symptoms of, of being irritable and harsh and self-righteous We'll take it down a path where before long you're going to find your heart even being tempted by and, and desiring evil things that will enslave you. How do you overcome these distractions? How do we, how do we not get distracted by the things of this world? How do, we, how do we do that? Do what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. I have been so overwhelmed and so gripped by this man that I don't even know personally, but I can't wait to meet him one day. I love Nehemiah. Reading about him these last several weeks and seeing how he was always in prayer. And other than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, there's no one else like Nehemiah that was so in tune with God, who was so much a man of prayer that there's this constant refrain, he was led by God constantly being led by God and constantly in prayer. That's the key, is communing with God. It's, it's, it's the key is to spend time, focus time, really reading his word and focus your thinking on it and pray and, and sense God's presence throughout the day. You don't do that. You'll get distracted. And go down paths that you don't want to go.
Remember your guilt. And yet remember God's glory in saving you from it. Truly draw near to Christ and he will draw near to you and you will not be nearly as distracted by the things of this world. So maybe today you need to confess that you've had an idol that really has consumed your heart or life. And so I would encourage you to find someone, your home group, discipleship group, someone that you're close to that you trust, same gender, and and confess that idolatry. Confess that which has been distracting you from Jesus. And then repent of it before God. And run back to Jesus. His, His arms are wide open. He'll take you back. We must not be distracted, but he empowers us to not be distracted. Number two, God empowers his people in the face of lies. So he empowers us in the face of distraction. He empowers us in the face of lies. Let's read Nehemiah 6, verses 5 through 9. In the same way, when Sanballat, for the fifth time, here it is, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations that Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And that is why you're building the wall. And according to those reports, which you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so that now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This is just awesome to see how God delivers us from the lies of the enemy. And so what you see here is Sanballat, who was the ruler of neighboring Samaria, sent out a fifth letter. But this was an open letter. So this was going to be public record for anyone to read and to see. Filled with lies about the Jews rebelling against the Persian rule, about Nehemiah wanting to be the king and using prophets to propagate this agenda. Those are lies. But Satan is very sneaky. When he lies... He always makes it sound like it could be true. He doesn't lie to you straightforwardly because you would catch that. He always lies to you in a very crafty way where it, it sounds, that sounds reasonable. Like it could be true. But he corrupts it. It really is a lie. And so in this text, you see the Jews, it's true. They did have a history of rebelling. So he's right about that but rebelling against their God. They had no intentions of rebelling against Persia. So that's a lie. Nehemiah was waiting for the day when the Messiah, this promised king, would appear to rule over God's people. That's actually true. But Nehemiah didn't believe he was the Messiah. He didn't think that he was going to be the king. That was a lie. And so in the face of these lies, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't doesn't try to even give a response back to the, the accusers. He trusted God, and he simply responded, you're inventing this out of your own mind. There's no truth in it. I'm not going to respond to it. I have work to do. I have to go be about God's business and his glory, and I'm going to go rebuild this wall. I won't get distracted, and I'm not going to believe these 
lies. And what does he do in verse 9? He prays, oh God, strengthen my hands. In the middle of these potential distractions and all these lies and slander, he says, God, help me. You see him there praying and drawing near to God again, saying, help me, God, to not be afraid and give me strength. Our enemy has used lies from the beginning with Adam and Eve. You see it here, and he does it with us every day. He uses lies to defeat us, and the evil one will whisper in your ear. He'll tell you, God doesn't love you. Just look at you. You're a hypocrite. You're a mess. Are you sure God loves you? Because if God really loved you, then he would already have given you whatever it is that you would desire that hasn't happened yet. Are you really sure you can trust him? Or he whispered to you and he said, go ahead and just enjoy that private sin. No one's going to know. And besides that, you've been working really hard. So you, you deserve to get some relief from your stress. It's not hurting anyone. Just a little. These are all lies. They're lies, and they may seem to be true because we are sinful. And sometimes we are hypocrites. And sometimes we really are messed up. And we don't deserve God's love. So those are, that's where there's like this partial truth. But where it's a lie is that we stand not on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. We don't don't have to impress anyone. We don't have to earn God's approval because Jesus already did. He paid it all. We are already accepted by God. You, before God, are justified right now, declared righteous. You have his spirit. You were adopted into his family. You have an eternal purpose. Your life matters. Don't believe the lie. Don't do it. It's so easy to believe it. You look in the mirror and you think, man, I I can't get it right. Maybe that's true. But Jesus did. He's bigger. And he is stronger. And when we wonder, God, do you love me? Look one place. Look to the cross. Love. There is no greater display of love than Christ crucified for you and for me. That is love. I was talking to a brother just this morning. He was really encouraging. He was saying, you know, I was reading about Charles Spurgeon, who was the Prince of Preachers of the 19th century. And he said, it's more important that the judge says I'm not guilty than how I feel. Because before God, you are, if you trust Christ, you are not guilty. And so we continue to look 
to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is faithful. He will complete the work that he began in us. So we continue to look to him and to trust him in the face of these lies and say, yes, Satan, you're right. I am messed up, but I trust you, Jesus, and I'm looking to Jesus to save me and to redeem me, to transform me, to restore me, and to heal me. It's not about what you can earn. It's about mercy. And that's why Jesus came. So we draw near to him and just feel his mercy just rushing in to heal and to uplift you. We have a God that cannot lie. He can't lie. And so we believe his word. We believe him. And if you are following Jesus, you are justified before God. And your father who loves you is pleased with you. We fight the lies, the truth of who we are in Christ through his gospel. He empowers us in the face of lies. Number three, he empowers us in the face of fear. So in the face of distractions and lies and fear, our God is greater and he is stronger and he empowers us. Let's read Nehemiah 6, verses 10 through 14. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mechatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For his purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so you see here that Nehemiah visits a man who is supposedly a prophet who speaks for God. And this prophet says, thus saith the Lord, this is the sense you get in the text saying that your enemies are planning to kill you. Let us go and seek safety in the temple so that you won't die. But Nehemiah knew that this was a false prophet. This was not from God because Nehemiah wasn't a priest. Now, Ezra was his friend, but Nehemiah was not a priest. And so Nehemiah couldn't go into the temple on the outer of course, but he couldn't go in. Only priests could actually go in. So he, he didn't want to disobey God's word. So he knew, here's a word from the Lord, but it can't be because it goes against the word. It goes against the scriptures. So that is a false prophet. So he was discerning that. And he knew, well, he was just a hired prophet. He wasn't even really a prophet. He was just purporting to be one to make Nehemiah afraid. So what does he do? He prays. That's what Nehemiah always does. He prays. He draws near to God. I want to be like Nehemiah. 
And I pray that you do too. This is awesome. Read verses 15 through 16. He's saying no to distractions. He is saying no here to the lies and to the fear. And so verse 6, I'm sorry, 15, here's what the word says. So the wall was finished. Praise God. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, amazingly fast. Verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Praise God. He empowers us. He saves us. He sustains us. He's the one to help Nehemiah do the impossible in the face of the opposition. And what happened? God's glory was displayed. Where everyone around could see there is a God and there's only one true God. And he works through the lives of his people and accomplishes the impossible. And that's what God is after. People will be so focused on him that we accomplish the impossible. Verses 17 through 19 as we finish the chapter. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Yehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So there's that theme again, wanted to make me afraid. So let me explain what's happening here in this text, okay? So Tobiah was one of the rulers that was trying to intimidate Nehemiah. He, he was an Ammonite. He wasn't even a Jew, but he had married prominent Jewish women. And so it was then using those relationships to then manipulate the Jewish officials to then make Nehemiah afraid. So he was using Nehemiah's co-workers that were... There were Jews that were rulers under his authority as a governor, but still prominent officials that were then speaking highly of the enemy. And it says that they were even sharing what Nehemiah was saying. So these were spies that were sharing information with the enemy, speaking well of the enemy, and carrying letters to further intimidate Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah can't catch a break. He tries to build a wall, and they attack, and he has to build a wall with the sword in one hand, and the walls are now done, and the enemy still won't let up, continuing to intimidate, continuing to manipulate, and to control, and to try to defeat him. And what, what does he do? He prays. He turns to God. He entrusts himself to God in the face of fear. And all of us have experienced this. The enemy wants us to be afraid. And all of us face worry, anxiety, and fear. Fear really is a result. We feel paralyzed or we feel helpless. So what is it that makes you afraid? What causes you to be fearful? I don't know. Is it fear of failure or fear of the future or not having enough money? Your contract not being renewed. There's so many realities living out here that can cause to be very anxious or afraid. But understand this, that security makes anxiety disappear. 
feeling secure will help the feelings of anxiety to just disappear. So if you're struggling with anxiety, your fear, focus with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul on our God. Don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on God. Because focusing on circumstances, that's despair. Focusing on God, that's hope and security. So we run to the shelter of God's character. We find our safety and security and comfort in our God who is in complete control. So as we wrap things up here, I know I've gone along. I appreciate your patience. God empowers his people to persist in accomplishing his purposes. Truly enjoying Jesus. Focus time with him. That's the key. This restoration that we have results in holy persistence. We will continue to persist to pursue Christ and to be more like him. Chapter 7, we won't read it. I'll talk about it for about one minute or less. Chapter 7 is basically virtual copy of Ezra 2. And so what Ezra 2 wrote is then now placed here again in Nehemiah 7. It has a list of all the exiles that left Babylonia and returned to Jerusalem. And so there's one verse I'll read to you, Nehemiah 7.4. It says that the city was wide and large, Jerusalem, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. And so Jerusalem wasn't yet populated. So the temple was rebuilt. Now the walls are complete, but no one is living there. And so what we'll see later in Nehemiah is that he then populates Jerusalem. But the only people that were allowed to go into Jerusalem were direct descendants of the people that had returned originally many years, like 100 years earlier, from Persia. And so what does this mean? I mean, this is showing that God wanted people that were set apart for him to live in that holy city. And that God has a plan to create a holy people that will love him and that will display his glory to the nations as we see here in Nehemiah. May we be a people that are persistent, not distracted, that do not believe lies, that do not live in fear, but instead be a people that focused, that believe the truth, and live boldly for his glory. Are you? If not, you can begin today. Today, you can come to Christ. And if you're a believer, let us run to our first love. Can you pray with me? Father, we praise you for giving us the joy of gathering in your name. Thank you for your word that is as convicting as it is encouraging. I pray that you would help us to be people that are truly focused on you and that our lives reflect it. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name.